We are in Mark chapter 6, making our way, making headway through this wonderful gospel which Mark has given to us here in the Word of God. The latter half of Mark chapter 6 contains, I think, two of the most famous stories uh, in Jesus' life that anyone could ever know, really. Uh, One of them, of course, is the feeding of the 5,000. I've heard that story countless times. Perhaps you have too. The other story that is included at the end of this chapter is where Jesus walks on water. But what I want you to notice and what I want to kind of press into this morning is just sort of how different it is, how different Mark relays both of these stories. Both of them are not in the sort of familiar way that we remember these stories, especially how we remember them being told perhaps in Sunday school. Mark 6, the first kind of, like verse 30 through 44, tells the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's the only miracle that's recorded in all of the Gospels. But what I want you to notice is that there's no sort of culminating declaration of Jesus in this version. The most famous one, of course, is in John 6, where he feeds the 5,000. And at the end of that teaching, he makes that bold declaration where he says, I am the living bread. Remember, he says, John 6, 51, I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for in the life of the world. In John 6, in that version of these same events, he makes this incredible theological declaration that he himself is the bread that men must live on. And you'll notice that that's absent here. Just look at these verses. That's not in this version. And of course, that's not a mistake. That's not an oversight. That's not sort of like an accident or whatever that they forgot to include it. Of course, you have to remember a couple uh, months ago when we started this series, we started by saying that the Gospels are not biographies. They don't record every single thing that Jesus did. And if you'll notice, if you just compare them in just a very cursory way of reading them, they don't record the same things. They're not sort of meant to be an all-encompassing biography of this man named Jesus. What they are, are perhaps literary essays, divinely inspired, I might add, that are pressing us into, causing us to see this man, Jesus, from a bunch of different angles. They want us to see this unexpected Savior, They want us to, all of the gospel writers are trying to drive us home to a certain point. Get us to see that this Jesus, he is the Messiah. They show, they relay that message through a lot of different views. Such as why in this gospel here, this account of these events, you'll notice That the feeding of the 5,000 here is very disciples focused. Just look at verse 36. They're frustrated here. He said the disciples are venting to Jesus. They say, send them away. That they may go into the country, round about into the villages, and buy themselves bread. For they have nothing to eat. 
The scene, as we will see in a moment, really is oozing with the disciples just being irritated. They're frustrated at this crowd. They don't really want them to be there. They don't really even want to be ministering to them. (laughs) We don't get any divine teaching from Jesus. We don't get that awesome, I am the living bread here. We just get human annoyance. (laughs) Human frustration, aggravation at the situation. They're upset because their priorities aren't being followed. Their plans are being messed up. And I think that's exactly the point that Mark is trying to drive home here. Is that he's striving to show us the very type of God that we have. This account here, from verse 30 down through verse 52, gives us this incredible view of this type of God. The God that we have. The God who is always working to show us who he is. What he is like. The title for this morning's message is God's Unexpected Agenda. Because he is going to upset both the disciples' priorities and the disciples' plans. Those are really the main two headings I want to kind of I kind of want to sort of unpack here this morning. So the first lesson from our text this morning is a lesson about priorities, and it comes really from that story from verse thirty down through verse forty-four, which is the feeding of the five thousand. Look at verse thirty for us, or verse thirty quickly. It says, "And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught." So remember, uh, last week we saw the disciples are sent out by Jesus, and they are empowered to drive out evil spirits, and they go out on sort of a ministry excursion, so to speak. That's in verse verses seven through thirteen of the same chapter. And here they're sort of giving a report on everything they they had done. They're debriefing Jesus on on how they spread his name in all these surrounding regions. And notice what Jesus notices. Look at verse 30. Excuse me, 31. Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. He notices his disciples' exhaustion. He notices how fatigued they are. And he invites them again. Let's go away. Let's go to a private place. A secluded place. And let's rest. They were so busy. Much coming and going. They were so busy. Verse 31. They didn't even have time to eat. So he calls them. Let's go somewhere secluded. Let's recharge Let's rest, let's recover, let's get away from the pressure of these crowds, of this ministry. It's a divine, in a small way, it's a divine testimony to what many already know, is that ministry is a a, a work of sacrifice. These disciples are exhausted from their travels, exhausted from tending to uh, people's lives. Ministry is an exhausting work. I'm not saying that to prop myself up. I'm saying that because anyone who is involved in ministry in any sort of way knows how difficult it is. I've said this before, I, uh, and I, I, I hold to it because it weighs on me, is that, that ministry is the care for people's souls. 
Souls are in the balance every time we step across the threshold into the church building. Souls are at stake. What we teach in the various teaching ministries of the church has a great effect on people's eternities. That's a weight that is difficult to bear many times. It's a weight too because we know the brokenness of our own souls. If you've ever been in a a place in which you've taught... (laughs) You've had to sort of just, uh, juxtapose the idea that you know that this very same message is one that you need to apply to yourself. And here you are trying to speak it and give it. <laughs> I, that's sort of my working definition of ministry. It's just broken people helping other broken people learn to cope with their brokenness. <laughs> and directing them to the one who loves broken people. That's all ministry is. And it's Hard work. These disciples knew it firsthand. They come and they need rest. They need silence. They need solitude. But I love here that even though Jesus invites them into that reality. Hey, let's go away. Let's get some, get some sleep. Get some solitude. Get some solace from this pressure. All of that isn't realized again. Remember, they were crossing the Galilee beforehand, and they were going to get rest, and that's when they met the the demoniac of Gadara. And notice here, look at verse 33. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. This secret sort of mission to get away and get some sleep, get some solitude is exposed somehow. And these crowds of people start coming out, it says, of all cities. And they're running ahead. They're trying to intercept Jesus and his disciples. And here again, verse 34, it says, And when Jesus came out and saw much people, he was moved with compassion toward them. What the disciples were looking for They weren't able to achieve yet again. They're thrust right back into ministry. Jesus cannot help but help these people who seek him. And the disciples know that. And so when they see these crowds, it must have been, oh, shucks. We have to minister again. We have to go back into what we just came out of. It must have been slightly disappointing from a human level. But you see Jesus' heart here. You see, as we might say, Jesus' priority. Look again, verse 34. When he comes out of the ship, he sees all these people. And it says he was moved with compassion toward them. Because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This compassion that stirs Jesus, it comes from the bowels of his person. It's a deep-seated pity for these people. He sees them as lost sheep. And he knows himself to be the good shepherd, so he teaches them many things. But what, what you have to step back and notice... Is that Jesus' compassion for this crowd is outweighing, it's taking the place of his care for his own disciples. He had just said, hey, let's go someplace, let's get some rest and recover. They come out of the ship and he does the unexpected thing. He doesn't do what we think he should have done or might have done, which was what? Hey, Hey, we can't minister to you right now. 
We're too tired. We, we need some rest. We, we need some sleep. So go away. Come back tomorrow. He doesn't turn away the crowds. He leans into ministry. He leans into tending to these people's needs. And rather than turning around away this crowd... And and tending to his own disciples' exhaustion, he turns to this crowd and he teaches them. He teaches them about himself. He teaches them about who he is. He's the Savior, the one who has compassion on the world. Compassion on all those who seek him. And this is what I love about our Jesus, this Savior, that, that his mercy is tireless. His disciples are weary. His disciples are fatigued. Jesus' compassion and mercy knows nothing of rest or sleep. This is an unceasing and and a tireless mercy. Remember, Jesus is tired too. Jesus is weary just like his disciples are. And yet he presses in to teach them. He presses in and seeks to minister to this crowd's needs. That's his priority. His priority is to show everyone that was around him what type of God they had. Now, again, as we mentioned at the beginning, I think the disciples are noticeably annoyed by this whole scene, this whole scenario. It must have surely frustrated them. Here, they are tired. God, I I don't want to be around people. Have you ever had that feeling? You just don't want to be around people? (laughs) I imagine that's what the disciples are like. I just don't want to be around anyone. Just give me my phone and just let me just, give me a book. Let me just, and here they are. And they're forced into this situation where now they have to uh, be ministers once again. And they're perhaps annoyed. Jesus is teaching them. They know Jesus is long-winded. And look at verse 35. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away. This is the disciples' heart here. (laughs) They're kind of just expressing it right now, because they know that now the day is coming to a close, the evening is coming around, all of rational logic is leading us to say, let's just dismiss the crowds. We can do that now. We can do that and have a good reason to dismiss everyone because the day is coming to a close. It's, it's time to eat. We can't give them food. So let's just dismiss them. Let's, let's just end this whole thing. Send them away. Verse 36 again. That they may go into the country round about into the villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. Seems rational. A large crowd is there. They weren't prepared to cater to this type of multitude. You know, here Jesus ministers to them. He hears their logic. And I love his response. Because again, he counters with such an unexpected reply to them. They say, hey, Jesus, send them away. And what does he say? Verse 37. He answered and said unto them, give ye them to eat. He doesn't say, oh... Oh, you're right. I I didn't even realize the time. And we don't have food and and, and we can't feed everyone. So, okay, everyone just go home now. He doesn't say that. He says, hey, how about you guys feed them? (laughs) How about you guys? You, You go minister to them. You go feed them. 
Can you imagine the disciples' faces? <laughs> I would have loved to have seen what their faces were like. I know it's probably much like how we would react. They're puzzled and frustrated and perplexed. How in the world are we going to feed this many people? And you can see it in their reply. Verse 37 again. And the disciples say unto him, Shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? It's a cynical reply. They're not being honest. They're saying, should we give an entire year's wage to go feed this crowd? Should we do that, Jesus? You can sense their sort of sarcastic cynicism seeping through their words. Do you really expect us to do that, Jesus? How are we to feed this crowd? How on earth do you suppose that we do that? And that's exactly what Jesus is driving home. He wants them to see that they can't. He wants them to see that it's impossible in and of themselves to feed and minister to this crowd. But not with him. With him, all things are possible. In and of themselves, they are weak and insufficient. He wants them to see that they are incapable Helpless at meeting this crowd's needs, even their deepest needs. And in so doing, he was going to point to his all-sufficiency. Because notice the verse 38. He disregards their complaint. And he says unto them, how many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say five and two fishes. And here it says, and he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And we had taken the five loaves and the two fishes. He looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. <laughs> I love this. He, he sends out his disciples. Uh, again, stop and step back a minute. And just think about the disciples' complaint. And then Jesus says, go see how much food we can round up. Which must have felt like just the most defeating, worthless search as you're going through the crowd. What do you have? What can we use? And they come back. We have five loaves of bread and two fishes. And Jesus is like, okay. He disregards sort of the, the, the scanty resources that they're able to scavenge up. And he proceeds to feed this crowd. Feed them to the brim. Notice verse 42. I love verse 42 because it says, And they did all eat and were filled. They weren't eating crumbs. (laughs) He wasn't just like poking off little rations off of these loaves and these fishes. They were filled, much like you might feel later on Thanksgiving Day. This is what they were like. After you've gorged yourself, they had a feast. (laughs) They were filled. They were satisfied. They were full to the brim. They were no longer hungry, no longer weak in needing food. This is characteristic of the type of supply, the type of sufficiency that God gives us. He meets our needs and he exceeds them every time. He meets us where we are and exceeds all of our expectations of where we are. And this is exactly what I think he's pressing into these disciples. Pressing into us. 
is the fact that this scene before us here is perfectly composed in order to demonstrate the type of provision that God is going to give us. The type of protection and provision that he's going to give us. Which is what? It's not just merely a physical thing. It's something that he's showing us that he's going to go above and beyond whatever we think that we need. He's revealing himself as both Lord and Savior. He's master over everything, and he is the commander and the creator and the savior here. This is Jesus' priority. It's not ours. This is Jesus's, and this is what he's trying to get us to see. That his priority is always and everywhere to show himself as our infinitely sovereign and infinitely sufficient savior. He's sovereign over this bread. He's sovereign over your life. And he's sufficient for every single thing that you need. Bread or sin. (laughs) Daily nourishment or eternal condemnation. He's sufficient for all of it. He's sovereign over all of it. He's Lord and he's Savior. And he wants you to see this is the type of God that you have. He can take Whatever scanty resources we have, whatever frail faith that we have, and he can use it for his purposes. There's no situation that we can imagine, that we can conjure up in ourselves in which he is not meeting our needs, in which he is not sufficient. Because he is an all-sufficient, always sovereign savior. And his priority is to show us that. But secondly, look at verse 45. Because I want us to see the second lesson, which is a lesson about plans. So here, the disciples see this incredible miracle. Look at verse 43. Excuse me, I'll get, jump into verse 45. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments of the fishes. And they that had eaten of the loaves were about 5,000. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away The people. Again, so knowing what we know about the disciples and their frustration at what already happened, you have to see that now their ears must have perked up. Oh, finally. Finally, we're going away. (laughs) We can get some R&R. We can go away, get some rest. And they're told to go ahead of Jesus. They're like, okay, fine. We'll we'll go ahead of you, Jesus. We'll go there. We'll, we'll, We'll kind of make a place to camp out while you dismiss the crowd. They go ahead of Jesus in a boat unto Bethsaida. And Jesus, verse 46, descends away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. This isn't Mark's emphasis. You'll see this in other Gospels again, which is the difference between them. But this little moment of Jesus going away to pray in a mountain place is very significant and evident of Jesus' humanity. He too needed to go away and rest and get alone with his God. It was evidencing the weight of his mission. But such as what Mark wants to do is show us something even different than that. Because look at verse 47. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea. The disciples here. Again, they're following Jesus' orders. 
Jesus has told them, go ahead of me, go prepare a place for us to rest. And wouldn't you know it, they're caught in another storm. Wouldn't you know it? Disciples must have been like, really? The same sea, they've been crossing back and forth. And here again, their mission is to go get rest. And what happens? Another storm comes up against them. Just a couple chapters ago, chapter 4 at the end, but the same thing happened to them. And yet again, the disciples are, are, are obedient and the storm comes. They're following the command of their master and teacher and that's when the storm comes. It's not always when we are out of God's will that life looks like a mess. Sometimes the mess is exactly what God wants us, how God wants us to see that he is the Lord, even of those situations, that he is the sovereign savior, even in those trials, which we do not understand. Sometimes our plans look a certain way and they are going to be upset. Why? Because God wants us to see something else, something different. He wants to show us the type of God he is. They were on the path of obedience, and yet again, it tested them. Yet again, this storm came upon them, and they're struggling. It says they were toiling, verse 48, toiling in rowing. They're struggling to even keep this boat on course. It's such a contrary storm. This wind's blowing and beating against them. And yet, in the midst of all that, look at what happens, verse 49. And when they saw him... Walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit. So now, now they're not only toiling and struggling for their very lives, now they're being haunted by a ghost. (laughs) Now, this whole thing just got even worse. Because they see someone walking on water, and they obviously, they immediately think that it's an evil spirit. They think that it's an evil sort of phantom or specter or whatever. And they're terrified. Verse 50. For they all saw him and were troubled. They're petrified. They are so disturbed. They're crying out. They're saying, who is this person walking on this water? Who is this ghost that is haunting us? And I love how Jesus reveals himself. Because in the moments of when everything was swirling around them, it was so chaotic. Notice what he says. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. You know, I wish I would remember that little phrase throughout all of my days. When I'm stressed beyond belief and I think that God can't happen to make this a good situation because it's so incredibly grievous and and vexing or even when I'm fumbling because this person is driving bad. (laughs) I can be of good cheer then and be of good cheer when my mom is going through a, a terrible depression. It's the same encouragement for all of us. Be of good cheer. Why? Because it is I. Many of the commentators of this chapter would likely uh, make a link here between it is I and the fact that Jesus calls himself the I am. Yahweh, Exodus chapter 3, where Moses sees the burning bush. And he says, I am that I am. 
that wonderful name of the Lord, the God that we have. He's essentially saying that very thing. I am is here. That's why you can be of good cheer. This person walking on the sea, walking into this boat, (laughs) is the one who created everything. The one who spoke and everything came into being. And I love how he walks on this sea in verse 51, and he went up unto them, into the ship, and the wind ceased. The winds are immediately calm. It must have, again, it must have reminded them of what they had just experienced in Mark chapter 4 where he spoke and things were calm. Here he walks into the boat and everything is at peace. The winds cease. And look at their reaction. And they were sore amazed. And in in themselves beyond measure and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves. For their heart was hardened. Sore amazed beyond measure. They are stunned. They are bewildered. Just absolutely beside themselves. I think of the scene. Jesus is walking on water. They finally recognize. Oh that's our master and teacher. And he walks casually into their boat. Everything ceases. The storm calms. I just imagine them sitting there. (laughs) With mouths. Probably hitting the deck in wonder. (laughs) Mouths open. uh, Just astonished. Dumbfounded by what they had just seen. What just happened. (laughs) And I love verse 52. Well I love it but I also hate it. Because it reveals their heart. This editorial comment. This editorial comment from Mark. Explains why they're wondering. Why are they amazed? Why are they just left speechless? It's because they had forgotten. They considered not the miracle of the loaves. They forgot what just happened before. Again, we have to think about these disciples not as super spiritual Christians. They're just like you and I. Flesh and blood, forgetful, failures. People who struggle. People who have doubts and worries and fears. And here they forget exactly what they were supposed to see. And it shows us too that the loaves, the miracle of feeding the 5,000 was a lesson for them. A lesson that they had failed to learn. They were oblivious to the meaning of that miracle. And it led them here. To being astounded that this Jesus could walk on water and still the sea. But I think this is exactly his plan. This is Jesus' plan here. It's to show them the type of God that they have. The type of God that he is. He is sovereign. He's sufficient. He is the unique blend. Jesus himself is the unique blend between the the almighty power of God and the sympathy of God at the same time. It's combined in his person. That the passion and the compassion and the power of God is is the union here that we see in Jesus. Because he has God's power to stop and still a storm. He has God's compassion to do it on behalf of those whom he loves. 
You see, this is the type of God you have. He's not just all-powerful. He's all-powerful God who exercises his power on your behalf. He exercises his sovereignty for your sufficiency. He exercises his amazing power for your good and his glory. It reminds me, it reminds me of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Actually, a couple days ago was C.S. Lewis's, uh, the anniversary of his death. I think that was the 22nd. If you're familiar, C.S. Lewis wrote, among many other things, of course, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which is not a Christian allegory, which is, he resisted that idea. It was a metaphor. It was a metaphor for the Christian life, such that the character of Aslan, which is a talking lion, so... It's okay, it's just a fantastical story. It's a talking lion, and he is sort of the stand-in for Christ. He tells a fantastical story, weaving in all of these different amazing elements, and it's kind of as a metaphor for the Christian life. You have to know that it includes talking animals. But I want to read you a selection from this book, because I love how they describe the Christ figure here, how they describe Aslan. Our four main characters, Peter, Susan, Esmond, and Lucy, they are talking to a family of beavers. And Susan asks, who is Aslan? And Mr. Beaver, he replies this way. Aslan, why, you don't know, he's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. He's the king of beasts. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And Lucy, the other daughter, she asks, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love How Mr. Beaver describes Aslan. He's getting you to see the power of this figure. Yeah, he may not be safe. He's a lion. But he's good. This is the type of God that we have. He is all powerful. And he exercises his power for your good. He is all sovereign, but he exercises it to have compassion on you in your weakest, most trivial of moments. He is a God who is strong. He's a God who is mighty. He's a God who spoke and the worlds came into being. And he's a God who uses that type of might and strength and power to save you from your sins. To sustain you in your deepest, darkest of days. To minister to you when you feel like giving up hope. He's the master of all nature and he mercifully meets our deepest needs. This is what I love about God. He may not be safe, but he is good. He is sovereign. He is sufficient. He's the ruler of everything. And at the same time, he is your rescuer. He's the king. He is your king. He's the king who died for you. 
Can you get over that? I hope we never get over that fact. That the king of everything, the king of all creation. He's this king who takes the place of his people. Criminals like you and I. Sinners like you and I. This sovereign Jesus takes the place of them. He's sovereign enough and sufficient enough to meet all of your needs. Do you know God this way? Do you know God as both the sovereign one and the sufficient one? The master of everything and yet the merciful savior? He's a big God. And yet he notices and cares and loves you enough to die for you. You want to ask what God's agenda is? To show you that this is the type of God he is. Sovereign over the stars that we haven't even seen yet. Over galaxies and universes that we don't even know are out there. He's sufficient enough to care and notice even you. This is your God. Do you know him? Let us bow our heads. Close our eyes.